But right here in this passage, we see clearly that what Paul is trying to do is, or not what he's trying to do, what he is doing is explaining this triune God, this incomprehensible, infinite God who is one but three and works our salvation out with a clear purpose of a father who chooses, a son who redeems, and the spirit who seals. And that is the uh, beauty of this triune, incomprehensible God. And we are led over and over again to the praise of his glorious grace, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. When we read about this, this, this church in Ephesus, we see a small church in a big worldly city. Can you just imagine for a moment how hard it would be in this worldliness of Ephesus, this place where they idle the human body, they lust for success, they have an intensity towards gluttony, they are all about pleasure and seeking pleasure for themselves and comfort for themselves. And in the midst of this, they've got this tiny church in this big city and this church that is born again, died to the world and now is alive in Christ, and this stuff has to fade from them, but they're, they're in the midst of it, and they're surrounded by it. Can you imagine that? I assume we all can, because this is our world. This is genuinely our world today. We don't need to look at Ephesians and really try and comprehend too much about what's going on. It's the same today. We are a culture that is on every corner, a place of lust and coveting is there. We don't have to walk outside our house to be a covetous person or a lustful person. We just need to pick up our phone or look on the TV. We live in a day where our bodies are sexualized sexualized, and there's avenues for sin wherever we look. What we see in Ephesus, in this small church, there's not much different to what they're experiencing to what we're experiencing today, except really the avenues for sin have increased that we can't even go into our own home without being tormented by the ways in which we could lust or covet or idolize things. On top of that, we have an anxiety, an anxiety that is increasing in people, an anxiety to succeed, an anxiety to be successful or have status or to reach the next level of life, whatever that actually looks like. The same was true for the church in Ephesus pushing and pushing, trying to reach this next level, trying to have success, have more income, have more wealth, have more status, to be known by people in the city. That's our world. And the message of Ephesians, the message we see so clearly is, church, that's not you. Church, slow down. Church, you are different. You will feel the weight of being different. You are now foreigners and aliens and strangers and outsiders in the world. By the time we get to Ephesians 4, it says, do not walk in this way. Don't walk in their way anymore. You've died to that or you've put that off, put on the new life in Christ. And over and over again, Paul is reminding us that we are not of this world, but we are in Christ. And in this passage here, this one long sentence in the Greek from 3 to 14, verses 3 to 14, we see so many times that he says, you are in him, you are in Christ. 
Throughout the whole of the New Testament, or sorry, throughout Paul's writings alone, we see in Paul's writings 169 times that he says, in Christ. Only in the scriptures we see the term Christian used three times. So instead of Paul identifying himself as a Christian or the church as Christians, he would just say, we're in Christ. This is who we are. We are in Christ. We're in him. And this has so much meaning for us today because it it detaches us from the world. We are not primarily fathers, mothers, sons, daughters, husbands, wives. We aren't doctors, tradies, teachers, or whatever we status ourselves with. No, we are in Christ. And if we are in Christ, our identity is transformed and our purpose is transformed. We don't go to work for the same reasons our colleagues go to work. We don't raise our kids the same way the world raises our kids. We don't use our finances the same way the world uses their finances. And Paul is saying, now that you are in Christ, all things will change. And he has reminded us that we are in Christ because we are chosen by the Father, we are redeemed by the Son, and now we're going to look at because we are in Christ, our destiny is different. Which means we don't have to strive for the next level in this life. We don't have to get to a certain point so that we can retire. Our retirement is in glory. Our inheritance is in glory. And it's fixed for us. It's certain for us. It's not going to fade or diminish or be left. So church, can I encourage you? And I will continue to encourage us as we go through this letter, breathe, slow down. Don't walk as fast as the world. Don't chase the things of this world. Jesus was never in a rush. He waited till he was 30 to start his ministry. And then he slowly journeyed to Jerusalem. Jesus was always doing three things. Worship, formation, and mission. Worship of the Father in all things. Formation in discipling and transforming the understanding of his disciples. And on mission, calling the world to repent. When we look at our world, when we look at who we are, whether we are whatever career we status ourselves with, we're primarily in Christ. We are parents in Christ, men and women in Christ. We are doctors or engineers or tradies or teachers in Christ. And therefore, our mission is not like the world, but to worship, to be formed in the likeness of Christ and to recall people to repent and belief. Let me read our passage and I'm going to pray for us. Our passage is the end of this section, 11 to 14. We're looking at the Holy Spirit, what we have obtained through Christ's work. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let's pray.
Oh, Father, we need you. I need you. We are the definition of weakness. We have no strength. We have no wisdom. We have no might. All that we have comes from you, Lord. It is your word that we want to illuminate now. It's your word that will will cause our hearts to be transformed. It's your word that will form us, that will cause us to treasure you, that will immobilize us and equip us to be on mission. It's your word, Lord, that reminds us in our doubts that you are Lord and that we are in you. It's your word that reveals who you are. Father, help us. By your spirit, we pray that right now as we worship you in this time, form us, conform us to your likeness, confirm our identity, give us assurance of our salvation and make us one, Father, as you are one. That we, although spread out across this city, will all claim the same identity, that we are in Christ. Despite what comes, despite what the world is doing, would we be among the faithful that by your Holy Spirit endure to the end and claim this glorious inheritance? Thank you for setting a seal upon our heart. Thank you for the guarantee. Encourage us now, we pray, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. It's not surprising that verse 11 starts once again within him. The same start as what we read in our last passage, starting in verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Now, in him, because of that redemption that we have through his blood, because of the forgiveness that he has claimed for us, which we sought and understood last week, we have an inheritance. We have a certain future. So as we look at this title, this in him, it grows in us with this greater and greater weight that we are in him. We explored it just before, thinking about who we are in Christ, that we are now identified primarily by Christ, not by who we say we are by the world, but by Christ. And it's in this, it's in this that we have security. It's in his blood and remembering of his blood that he caused us to be redeemed by and the sending of our sins far from us. It's in these promises that we have absolute security. It's in this passage as it tells us that in Him the Father chose us, in Him we are redeemed, in Him we have a future, that we have hope, an inexhaustible hope. A hope that says, my past makes sense, my secure, my present, my present is, my presence is secure and my future is certain. We have this incredible uh, expectancy that because we are in Christ that we are waiting for something. 
Christ has not left us. Christ hasn't said, I redeem you, now go about your world, functioning as you do, go about your life, living as you were once were. He is not saying that, but he's saying, now live differently. If we look at the next line, or the next few words, we have obtained an inheritance. Notice the emphasis here is that we have obtained it. A prophet, when he speaks, speaks forth in the past tense. And often we read things in Isaiah and Jeremiah that don't make much sense because they're speaking about a future event, but they're speaking about it as if it's already happened. And this was the way of saying God's word is so sure, God's prophecy is so sure that it will happen. It's so certain that it's definite. It's not a maybe, it's not a possibility, it's a certainty. And we see in Paul's writing here, taking from this experience of the prophets, he says, we have obtained an inheritance. So those who have been chosen by the Father, who have been redeemed by the Son through His blood, have an inheritance. We have it right now. We claim it right now. We we don't wait for it, but we can identify with this promise. But that seems hard at times, right? That seems incredibly hard at times because this world is full of suffering. This world is full of pain. We're sorrowful but always rejoicing as we looked at in communion. But the freedom of the gospel is that we're not bound by the suffering that we live for, that we have now. If we are in this world, if we live in this world in our day and age and our status is all we have, our parenting status, our husband or marital status, our career status, if that is all we have today... When those things end, we're miserable. If we get divorced, we're miserable. If a spouse dies, we will be miserable. There is no hope beyond that. If we lose our job, we are miserable. And there's no hope. But we say that we could lose our spouse, that we could lose our job, that we could lose our health and still have this expectancy of a certain hope, a certain inheritance. Later on in Ephesians, it says that we are seated in the heavenly places with Christ. Not we will be, but we are. That is, that's incredible the way Paul speaks here. He's saying this isn't a maybe, this isn't a possibility, but you will actually be seated with Christ because you are already. It doesn't feel like it, but we are. If we remember back, what we're looking at in verse 3 is that these are the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. The spiritual blessings in the heavenly places is that we have been chosen to be holy and blameless, adopted sons, redeemed by His blood, forgiven of our trespasses, and now a future hope that is ours to claim today. So day after day, and we always use day after day, but lately I've been realizing that it's moment after moment, because I am so weak and so uh, in need of God's grace, moment after moment, I recall these promises. I'm in Christ. This world is not all I have. My career is not who I am. My marriage is not who I am. My children are not who I am. My inheritance is secure. It's not going to a fade. So we see this emphatic word, we have obtained this inheritance. 
See, outside of Christ, for those who aren't in Christ, there is only the only ultimate and eternal thing that they can receive is God's condemnation. Everyone outside of Christ, the only ultimate and eternal thing that they will receive is God's condemnation. For us, the ultimate and eternal thing is an everlasting life with God. Paul goes on to explain that we have claimed this, once again, not by our own merit. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Two weeks ago, we looked in, 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 uh, in depth at this word predestined. We looked at in depth this verse in verse 3. That we were, so verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Verse 5, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Paul now comes back to this point and he's saying, we have been redeemed through Christ, which we did last week, and now we have this inheritance. Bear in mind, you didn't earn it. Bear in mind, church, little church in this worldly city, you didn't claim this for yourself. You didn't work for it. You didn't choose to be a son. You're not entitled to it. It's not by your merit, but it's through God's sovereign choosing. Having been predestined, which means predetermined, to be seated with Christ, to be uh, to claim an inheritance. So in Him, we have this inheritance. We have obtained it, although it's not in its fullness. We will actually receive it. And it's not by our doing, but it's by His work and His work alone. Predetermined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. He couldn't say it in a more direct way. He's saying it in two different phrases. He's repeating himself and he says, predestined according to his purpose, according to the counsel of his will. We are supernaturally predestined. We are taken from a low level away from God and brought into his fold. There was nothing we could do to claim it. It is only by his work. Now in verse 12, it's one of those hard verses to work out. We see uh, here in our uh, English translation, it says, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. But when we actually look at it, it's actually flipped and it says, when we look at it in its original text, it says, but we should be to the praise of his glory who hope first in Christ. That we should be to the praise of his glory who hope first in Christ. So what we actually see there is after he speaks about having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we should be to the praise of his glorious grace. Paul is often, and he does it in verse 6, reminding us that it is always to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. And right now, when he speaks about this sovereign choosing of God, this divine election that he has, it is to the praise of his glory. We don't argue with a sovereign or consuming God. We don't argue with a God who knows all things before the world was created. And Paul here reminds us, this is to the praise of his glory. We have an inheritance, inheritance not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ's done, because of God's sovereign hand in choosing us, because of his will, and it's to the praise of his glory. 
So when we read this, when we think about these words, when we understand them, we go, praise you, Lord. Praise you. In a book written in the uh, 1600s, Jonathan Edwards wrote, The End for Which God Created the World. A book that is very intellectual and I struggle to read it, but let me summarize the whole book for you. It says that God created all things, absolutely everything. His whole plan was to bring glory to his name. It was not for us. God did not need us. He created everything to bring glory to his name. Therefore, in his sovereign choosing, in his choosing of who will be in Christ and who will have this inheritance, it is for his glory. And he is right in doing so because there is nothing higher than him. When we look at this, when we think about the end for which God created the world and we see three times in this passage it's to the praise of his glory, we should sit in awe and go, wow. Wow that you would choose any. Wow that you would claim any. Wow that your son would come and give his blood. Wow that you would cast my sins as far as the east is from the west. Wow that you would give us an inheritance. Wow. To the praise of his glory. Now the rest of verse 12 and 13 goes on to explain the oneness of two communities or the Jews, God's original people, and the Gentiles coming together. If we go back to our English translation to understand that, verse 12 says, So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him. So we notice that there's a swap in the pronoun. He says, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ. And then later in verse 13 he says, in, And in, in him you also, when you... So he swaps it around here. He's speaking about we and you. And we need to understand that Paul was a Jew. Paul was a Jew and God's people in the Old Testament were Jews. So God, through his sovereign hand, was always planning to have a people for himself. That he would be a God who ruled over them. And we see Adam created to be those people. And of course, Adam sinned and rebelled. It's in many ways God's grace that he allowed Adam to choose whether he would stay in the garden or not. God didn't, God wasn't unaware that Adam would do that. We're not saying that God realized in a moment and went, oh no, Adam's stuffed up. It was always God's plan that Adam would rebel. It was always God's plan so that we would see his glorious grace. That's why he says to the praise of his glorious grace. That's why in Romans 9 he says there's some who are objects of wrath so that the objects of mercy may see his glory. We see that Adam was always going to sin and then God deliberately chooses an insignificant nation coming from one man, Abraham, who grows into a powerful nation through the protection of God the Father throughout the whole of their history, yet over and over again rebelling and turning against God. What we see, the whole Old Testament shows us that no matter how much we see, how many signs we experience from God, we will rebel. We can see all the plagues that he sent on Egypt. We can see the parting of the sea. We can see... He's a nation brought into the promised land and prosper and we will still rebel against God. 
So when people say, I'm waiting for a sign, you've had all the signs. The human race has received everything. And we still turn from the God of this universe. We are, by nature, objects of wrath. And if it weren't for Christ, we would not be redeemed. So what does God do? His plan all along was to bring a better Adam, a better Abraham, a better Moses, a better King David, Jesus Christ. And he comes and instead of claiming just the Jews, he claims for himself a nation, a people, a bride from every tongue, tribe and language. So we see Paul saying, we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. We, the Jews, because of our election, because of our choosing in God's uh, eyes, we had the first right to Christ. So who did Jesus come to? He said it quite often, to Israel, to the lost sheep of Israel. He came to preach to the Jewish people. And who did the apostles go to first? First go to Jerusalem, Judea, and all of Samaria. First he went to the Jews. So God's grace to Israel, the Jewish people, was that they would get to taste first in Christ. That they would get to experience Christ first, see Christ first, and maybe come to repent in, repent and believe in Christ. Now Paul says, we were the first to hope in Christ, but you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, when you also, Paul's reminder here is that Gentiles, the rest of the world, everyone that isn't a Jew, everyone that wasn't part of Israel is now invited in. Not through a different means, but through the same means. Christ saved the Jews and Christ also is for the Gentiles. It is through the gospel, the word of truth. The gospel of their salvation and it's through their belief. So what we see is if we turn through the Bible, we know that Romans 1.16 tells us that the gospel is the power for salvation. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, when it went forth and was preached, that is how the Jews came to repent and believe in Jesus. When Paul went to the Gentiles and preached the gospel of, of Jesus Christ, that is how they came to know Jesus and repent and believe. Romans 10 tells us faith comes through hearing the word. Faith comes through hearing the word. It is through the preached gospel message of Jesus Christ that people will come to hear his word and repent and believe. So what Paul is saying, yes, we Jews were the first to hope in Christ, but you also heard the same message, the same gospel, and believed in the same Christ. And Christ, everyone who is in Christ, will receive this inheritance. Because he goes on to say, and was sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Everyone who is in Christ will receive, both Jew and Gentile, will receive the promised Holy Spirit. You know, us as humans, we're pretty sceptical. I see it often in the Christian world. We're sceptical of other denominations. We're sceptical of trying to meet with one another to see if we can partner in ministry. But definitely in the outside of the Christian world, we're even more sceptical. We want to know that someone's word is certain. And especially if we've been burnt a couple of times. You know, we see deals on TV, but we, we know there's a catch. There's 
fine print to it. We hear politicians make promises, but do they ever really pull through? But when God makes a promise, when God makes a promise, we have a history written out in the Bible of him being faithful to his promises. Not only that, we know his character and his attributes and we know that he is a good God who is holy, 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 who will not lie and cannot lie. We read that, that God can't lie. And God promised all the way through the Old Testament in Ezekiel, uh, he promised that you would be sealed with the Holy Spirit or you would be given the Holy Spirit. When Jesus came in John uh, 14 to 17, he's writing about the work of the Holy Spirit, your comforter, your counselor, he will come to you. When he leaves and ascends into heaven, he says to his disciples, wait until you're filled with power from the Holy Spirit. And it wasn't just for the Jews, it wasn't just for the apostles, but all both Jew and Gentile, both the oneness in Christ is now sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Those who are redeemed by Christ, those who have repented and believed and trusted in Christ now are sealed with the Holy Spirit. This is a one-time moment. In our justification, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. We don't need to be sceptical of God's promise. We know that He is faithful to promises. So when he says you'll be, you'll be sealed with the Holy Spirit, we can trust that that is true. The Holy Spirit comes upon us, causes us to repent and believe. He makes our life new. We are born again and justified in Christ. The difference between God's people of the Old Testament and today, the people that are in Christ, the church, is that we have the Holy Spirit. That's all that's changed. It's a miraculous change, it's a supernatural change, but the Israelites did not have the Holy Spirit. At times, some of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. We see it mentioned that they were filled for a moment, but they didn't have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. When Christ died, the curtain of the temple was torn, the Holy of Holies was exposed, and now it says in Corinthians that our our body is the temple for the Holy Spirit. We've been made righteous and holy so that His Spirit can dwell within us. This is an incredible gift. A gift that means we can now be obedient to Christ. A gift that means we can now follow His way, love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul and strength and love our neighbour as ourselves. The gift that makes us sensitive to His Word. But at times it doesn't feel like that. At times we go through seasons of doubt. Do I really have the Holy Spirit? Well, we can know and we can have certainty of having the Holy Spirit. But what we need to first remember is that here it says that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit and later, just in verse 14, it says that He is our guarantee of our inheritance. So firstly... We need to believe and understand and know that the Bible teaches that those who first trusted in Christ will endure to the end. You will not fall away. You will not disappear. You will not leave the faith. It is not possible to be uh, unsealed by the Holy Spirit. It's not possible to be snatched out of Jesus' hand. It's not possible to lose a guarantee. It's not much of a guarantee if that's the case. So right here we see that the Holy Spirit is a seal, a guarantee, and therefore we cannot lose our salvation. 
Now, when I say this, nearly always someone would say, oh, but I know such and such, and they were a really passionate Christian, and they were worship leading or leading church or, or doing all this mission stuff, and they're not a Christian anymore. That is experiential theology. That is basing what you believe about God by an experience, you've, what you've seen with your eyes. We do not hold to that sort of theology. God has revealed his way, his design, his purpose in his word. So we read the word and we test everything by the word. So when I see this passionate person, sometimes even a pastor, following the Lord, thinking they're doing uh, the Lord's work and looking like they're passionate and then fall away, what that reveals to me is that they were a fraud. They were a fraud or they're in a season of grieving the Holy Spirit, which they will one day come back. So what we see in the scripture is that we are sealed and we are guaranteed by the Holy Spirit that our salvation is made solid in Christ. It's a certainty of our inheritance. So therefore, what do we do when we are suffering under doubt? How do we know that we have the Holy Spirit? Well, the Bible tells us multiple times to test our salvation. 2 Peter 1.10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall away. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Philippians. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So we've got these two passages here that tell us, one, test or or be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Otherwise, you'll prove not to be saved. So we've got this mandate to test our ceiling, test our guarantee. In 1 Corinthians 13, it tells us to examine ourselves. The whole book of 1 John is a letter to test, to see whether we are in the faith. Examine yourself, see whether you are in the faith. And we've got this word that we can look at and see, are we actually full of the Holy Spirit? Well, 1 Corinthians tells us that no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. So the first test we can do is, are we saying Jesus is Lord? Now, of course, we can rattle off those words and have no meaning to it, but what he's actually saying is no one can say and live that Jesus is Lord over their life without the Holy Spirit. There will be cracks. There will be evidence that it is for selfish gain or selfish motives if they are doing it for the wrong reasons. But test ourselves. Do we see Jesus as Lord? Are we declaring to our wives, our husbands, our friends, our family, our neighbours, Jesus is Lord over my life. He's Lord over your life. And do we believe that? Do we live it out? Our first test of the Holy Spirit is do we live out that Jesus is Lord? Our second test is that we're growing in the fruit of the Spirit. And let me just remind us of this. Evidence of the Holy Spirit is not that you are full of spiritual gifts. And when I say spiritual gifts, I mean the hyper-spiritual gifts we see in speaking in tongues and speaking words over people, prophecy and healing. That is not evidence that you are saved. There are many who will do mighty works in God's name, it says in Matthew 7, and they will come to Jesus on that day and he'll say, I never knew you. Evidence of your salvation is that you are growing in the, whole, in the fruit of the Spirit. We may see people 
that walk around saying, I am full of the Holy Spirit because I speak in tongues and speak words over you at all points, but really they are puffed up and they are deceiving the Word of God because 1 Corinthians 12 to, 13, uh, 12 to 14 gives us clear mandates on how those gifts should be used. And it's in private, with humility, to build one another up, not to build ourselves up. I remember my mate going to meet this bloke and this bloke at the last minute changed the plan and said, come and meet me at this lookout. And when my mate got there, he got to this lookout and they were walking down the dirt track and the, his, his mate said to him, oh, cut, we're going to meet some Christians. These guys are the real deal. They speak in tongues and prophesy. Uh, and he gets down there and they're all just rambling and it was all just self-centered focus of who could have the last say and who could have the greatest word from God. I can tell you, they weren't full of the Spirit. They were full of something else, full of crap. That's what it is. Evidence of salvation is not that we are full of these spiritual gifts that are outwardly promoting ourselves. Evidence of the fruit, evidence of the Holy Spirit is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. This is the evidence. And when we use spiritual gifts, we use them in line with His fruit, right? We're not pushing our way to speak in tongues. We're not pushing our way to speak words over the top of each other because that's not gentle or kind. That's not loving. It's not even faithful to Scripture. So we've broken the Holy Spirit's fruit. So when we're looking at evidence and when you say, oh, who is a Spirit-filled person? A Spirit-filled person is someone that over a period of time is faithful and enduring in the Word of God and faithful in growing in the fruit of the Spirit. I'm not the same person I was 10 years ago when Christ called me. I won't be the same person in 10 years' time. And if the Holy Spirit is in you, the same is true. You are not the same person when you were first called and you will not be the same person in years to come. Last evidence that we see in the Scriptures is that you will endure. We are sealed, we are guaranteed of our inherit. We have a guarantee of our inheritance. Those who will, those who endure will be saved. The Holy Spirit will actually bring us to the end. Yes, there is a time where you may go through doubts and grieve the Holy Spirit. Go through them. Don't avoid them. Call brothers and sisters around you and say, I'm struggling to believe and let them speak the word of life into you. The Holy Spirit will bring you through to the end. You cannot be snatched from your hand. You can't leave Christ. You cannot be snatched from Christ's hands. You can't leave his hand. The last evidence that we have is that we will endure. We may go through rocky seasons. We may go through doubts. But he's not much of a guarantee if he doesn't bring us to the end, right? One Corinthians, uh, uh, Philippians tells us that uh, he will bring us to completion on the day of Christ. That's great. That's a promise I want to hold to, that we will be brought to completion when Christ comes. Verse 14 brings us to remind us that he is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glorious grace. So Paul said, we have obtained it, and now he says we will acquire possession of it. It's this tension between the now and not yet. We taste and see Christ now in this gathering as we gather as saints, as we go forth into the world and preach the gospel together, when we come to worship and pray together, when we study the word together. We're tasting in it, but we're not experiencing it in its fullness. And we will 
acquire this. He's a guarantee. That word should give us great comfort. It's the down payment. He's given us the Holy Spirit as a down payment to say, this is a taste of the eternal glory that you will experience. But I want to finish by the weight of this inheritance. What is our inheritance? What is our inheritance? What are the treasures in heaven that it says elsewhere? The Bible tells us that we will receive a crown of righteousness from Jesus himself. That sounds amazing, right? When Paul says, I look forward to when I'm going to receive the crown of righteousness, which is there for all who love his appearance in 2 Timothy. I'm excited for the day we receive the crown of righteousness, but not because I get a crown of righteousness, because that crown gives us access to see this threefold, triune, incomprehensible God. The one who the Jews would call Yahweh, but would never say his name. The crown of righteousness is, is, is an incredible inheritance, but it's about what that crown of righteousness allows us to do, which is better. To enter into his presence. To see him face to face. That we will be able to gaze upon his beauty. We can't even imagine what a triune God is like. What does the Father, Son and Holy Spirit look like? Do we see them as one body? Do, do we see them as separate? I don't know. But we'll be able to see them face to face. We will see them. You know, heaven is not heaven if God is not there. I'm, I'm so overhearing people when they hear of someone pass away. Maybe they've passed away at a young age and they say, oh, he loves surfing on earth. He'll be surfing in heaven. Or he'll be riding bikes in heaven. Or he'll be fishing in heaven. No, he won't. He'll be gazing upon the beauty of a triune God. That is what we'll be doing in heaven and it will be glorious. That's what I want to do with heaven. I like riding motorbikes now. I'm not going to want to ride them in heaven. I want to look upon Jesus. I want to see his face. I want to understand his complexities. I want to know what it means to look on these, this God who looks like carnelian and precious gemstones and sapphires. I want to know that. I don't want to fish. I don't want to ride motorbikes. I don't want to surf or whatever else you like doing in this world. I want to be with Christ. The inheritance that we receive is the presence of the Almighty God. Pearly gates, gold streets, mansions with many rooms, crystal clear streams, seraphim and cherubim all sound good, but eventually you'll get bored. Maybe they'll entertain you for a day or for a moment, but before you know it, you'll be swinging on the gate of pearl board. But God is there. And He is infinite. God is enough. God is all we need. God is our inheritance. God in His threefold self will be enough to entertain us for 10,000 years and forevermore. Yes, heaven sounds amazing. Heaven sounds incredible, but if God isn't there, it is going to be boring. I heard a preacher say, everyone wants to go to heaven. They just don't want God to be there when, you get, when they get there. That's true. If our evangelism strategy is to walk around this neighborhood or the streets and say, you want to go to heaven? It's going to be a beautiful place. You can do all the things you love. Everyone's going to be like, yeah, I want that. But when we say, do you want to go to heaven? You're going to be among a multitude of saints glorifying one God. 
they're going to kick back. Their pride's going to kick back and they're going to be like, no, I don't want that. Sounds boring. But for those who are in Christ, for those who have seen His glory, for those who have seen the weight in which He went through, the suffering in which He endured to claim us, the blood in which He poured out, the way He sent our sins from us, we long for that day. And I encourage you, I plead with you, church, study Him, meditate on Him, know Him now so that on that day you will all the more want to delight in Him. We can taste in heaven now through gathering together and just reading about this God who loves us, who chose us, who secured us in Christ. 1 Corinthians 2 tells us that no eye has seen nor ear heard nor heart of man can imagine what God has prepared for those who love Him. So we can just study it all our life and never get to the point where we understand what we're going to see. So today we can study, and tomorrow we can study, and the next day, and the next day, and every day we study God in His fullness, and we won't even get to the point of imagining a glimpse of what He has for us in heaven. That's what it means to be in Christ. So that when we look at our goals in life, when we look at this world around us, our careers, the comforts we are trying to claim, the retirement we're trying to secure, slow down from all that. Take a step back from it. Worship more. Understand more. Witness more. Let's just take it easy in this life. We don't have to gain inheritance in this life. We don't have to gain retirement in this life. We don't have to get to the next level in this life. We are sure of having a glorious inheritance in the next. Can I encourage this church to slow down, to not be like the world that's running around, busy, busy with things that will perish, busy with treasures that will fade and be stolen, can I encourage you to worship more, grow in your understanding of his character more, witness more to the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. The end for which we were created will be that we worship at his throne and will not become bored. We won't become bored. He's infinite. He's eternal. He is definitely not boring. Let's pray. Father, by your Spirit, would you uh, 
enlarge our capacity to taste and see more of you now. Lord, there's suffering amidst us. There's, there's things to do. There's next levels to reach. There's a world that is just tempting us in every which way. And Lord, all of it, all of it will perish. Whatever we claim in this life will be no more. Only what we have in you will last. Our life is best spent in the exploring of who you are. Our life is best spent in in just trying to comprehend uh, that we're in Christ. Lord, we can do that as we work. But let it shape our work. We can do that as we parent, but let it shape our parenting. We can do that as we labor in whatever we labor in but let it shape our life. God, give us a glimpse, a taste, an experience. Fill us with the Holy Spirit that we may be growing in the fruit of the Spirit, awaiting the day when we will be with you and look to you. And Lord, the glory of heaven may be the most glorious thing we've ever seen, but it will still be nothing compared to the glory that we see in you. We will see you face to face. That is, our pro- that is the promise you give us. We will. Your Spirit is our guarantee. So as we stumble through sin and doubt, as we get caught up in in questionings of this world, Lord, surround us with one another that we may be built up and strengthened and spurred on towards the day in which you will come. And I pray along with what John the Apostle said in the last few words of the, the Bible, come Lord Jesus, come. Come and redeem this broken land. Come and restore us to yourself. Come and bring your church to be one away from all the divisions. Come and unite us. Come so that we may see, Lord. Come so that we may worship. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.